This afternoon we'll be looking at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. And we'll be doing this as we look through the lens of Scripture from Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 24 to 45. And you'll be able to find that on page 1020 of your pew Bible. Now Daniel is, uh, was a young man when he was brought into exile. And he was handpicked along with a number of other people for government service. He was recognized for his wisdom and he served in the court of the king. Now, up to the point in our passage, the king himself had had a dream. And the king kept men around who, whose responsibility it was to be able to interpret his dreams and interpret the omens. But this time around, he decided to make it harder for them. He said, to prove that you are legitimate wise men, I want you to tell me what my dream is before you interpret it. And if you can do both, then I'll know that you truly are my wise men. But if you can't, then I will kill all of you. And so they said, that's impossible. No one can do that. But before he was able to go around and put to death all of the wise men, Daniel among them, Daniel asks for time. And he comes to the Lord and he prays earnestly. And the Lord answers his prayer and gives him the dream and its interpretation. And then we come to our passage here today. Daniel 2 verses 24 to 45. Therefore Daniel... After he had received the answer, he went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, and the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So far... We'll now also read together from the Heidelberg Catechism as it looks at this petition of the Lord's Prayer. We'll look at Lord's Day 48 and you'll be able to find this on page 561 of your book of praise. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we may submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an incredible image we have here in the book of Daniel. This immense statue a giant symbol of the nations of the world just crushed to powder. Daniel is speaking in prophecy here of something that will happen. Something that we, as we're looking back in history, can see has happened. The kingdom of gold, the Babylonian empire, a kingdom whose reign is marked by incredible wealth and splendor, just as Daniel described it. Phenomenally wealthy and decadent, this was the hallmark of the Babylonian Empire. 
Think of the description of the parties at the beginning of the book of Esther. Treasures from the whole earth were brought in and displayed. The whole countryside was included in the feasting, and the splendor of the city of Babylon was known to the nations beyond number. Even in our modern world today, we speak about the hanging gardens of Babylon built in this era as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The kingdom of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. They basically took over the Babylonian kingdom, but they described themselves more as liberators. They were certainly wealthy, but they used much of that wealth to buy the goodwill of the people. You can think of the returning of many peoples to their homelands, more specifically the return of the Jews to Judah and Jerusalem after their exile. On returning to their homeland, they also returned some of the gold and silver and ceremonial cups to the temple of God in Jerusalem. Yes, they were wealthy, but they were not quite as wealthy and powerful as Babylon. Then you get the kingdom of bronze, that rule to the ends of the earth. The military conquests of the Greeks under Alexander the Great, not marked by wealth, but by military might. A kingdom which, in the language of Daniel, ruled over all the earth. Highly trained and equipped with weapons and armor of bronze, Alexander marched from Greece all the way to India. Now, some people take issue with the fact that this empire did not literally rule over all the earth. But you march for three and a half thousand miles one way on foot, and it certainly feels like you've covered all the earth. You also have to remember that at this time, Babylonia was enormous, and it basically considered itself to be the ruler of all the known world from their perspective. Anything beyond their borders was barbaric and wild. For the Greeks to rule over all of that was considered, from the point of view of the king to whom Daniel is speaking, it was considered for them to be ruling over all the earth. But bronze is weaker than iron. And so this next military empire, armed and armored with iron, came and also marched across the earth. With the collapse of the Greek Empire on the death of Alexander the Great and its gradual crumbling over the next few centuries, Rome was able to make great headway against them. Over these centuries, the iron might of the Empire of Rome stretched across the Mediterranean Sea, grinding all opposition to dust under the sandals of Rome's imperial legions. But this empire, as Daniel had foretold, would begin to rot from within. Divisions began to grow within the empire. They had spread themselves thin, and there were nations under their control who did not approve of the way that Rome governed. And you see this picture given by the growing presence of weaker clay. The empire truly did weaken. This is the picture that Daniel brings to the king of Babylon. God has drawn back the curtain on the future of the world and he's opened up a view for the king and for the people of God. He's given them a glimpse of what would happen. But it's a glimpse that's in light of a greater truth. And we'll see this under the theme, the coming of the kingdom 
first through all the earth and second through all our lives. So picture this, a rock that comes rolling down that crushes the incredibly powerful ancient kingdoms that came before it. A rock that grows, transcending borders and filling the whole world. This is the vision from God. This coming kingdom is the central point of the vision. As we know today, the Roman Empire eventually fell as well. Each of these kingdoms rose, fell, and was replaced. But here in this vision, we see an eternal truth coming through. God is in control. Despite nations rising and falling, his will comes through. In contrast with the kingdoms that are shaped and formed by man, this is a rock that comes from above, not formed by hands. This is a kingdom that does not line up with humanity's perspective of what a kingdom should look like. This is the kingdom of God. So how does this relate to the Lord's prayer today? You'll find that there's a logical order among the petitions of the Lord's prayer. And as we saw last week, we pray for God's name to be hallowed. We pray this would be true in our lives, especially as we come to know God and to respond to the knowledge that he gives us of himself. The problem is that while we ask God's name to be hallowed, this question arises in our hearts. We look around us. We look at the world around us. And we see many places in this world where his name is not hallowed. And the question then arises, why don't people hallow his name? It's because they don't recognize him as king. They don't recognize his authority in this life. And it's from knowing that that we pray the next petition, your kingdom come. When we pray your kingdom come, we aren't simply talking about the final day, the day of judgment. It's something that begins in our world. It's something that we are praying for the advancement of. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in Luke 16, verse 16, since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And in Matthew 11, verse 12, he says that forceful men take hold of it. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Though Satan has conquered and oppressed much of this world for a time, bending or trying to bend earthly kingdoms to his will, the kingdom of heaven has been bursting out into the world as it was foretold by Daniel. And it's been spreading across the globe. That is the rock that is growing. Expanding beyond political borders, again, this is a kingdom that's built, not made with hands. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of men. Expanding beyond political borders, ultimately, nothing holds it back. It began in a small way with the preaching of John the Baptist as he prepared the way and then Jesus Christ in this small corner of the world. 
but it grew. And in Acts, we can see as though it's a, a stone that's dropped in a pond and the ripples spread out. We can see how it grows from Jerusalem spreading out to Judea, then north to Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. It advances powerfully throughout the earth. And this hasn't changed. It continues to grow today. This is something that we can sometimes have a bit of a hard time with because we ourselves, we, we hear of the opposition that's growing. Just last year, we had experienced with our own government even where they had acquired those who wanted funding to subscribe to things that Christians can't subscribe to. We can see it around the world when we hear of acts of terror, when we hear of the opposition and persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world face. And yet the kingdom of God, despite all of this, despite everything that we hear, it continues to grow. It continues to advance powerfully throughout the earth. Now, admittedly, there's a difference between people who call themselves Christian and people who actually live out the Christian life. But consider this. In 1910, there were 600 million Christians on earth. In 2010, 100 years later, that number has grown to 2.2 billion. In Iran, one of the most hostile places towards Christianity in the world, the fastest growing religion is Christianity. In China as well, the fastest growing religion is Christianity. God's kingdom is advancing. This rock, not formed by hands, is growing. So in light of that, consider the power of this prayer throughout the ages. Christians around the world praying, your kingdom come, have had their prayers answered in a radical way. They prayed through this that God would, as our catechism puts it, preserve and increase his church. Don't take this lightly. The kingdom of God has burst into the world with power, with the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is still today spreading rapidly. Now, beloved of God, it can be tempting to shelve all of that because of the fact that we are looking at our own country here today. It can be tempting to, seem disappoint, to be disappointed by the seeming lack of progress in our own country. And we especially think of this as it is Canada Day today and our thoughts are reflecting on this. We're reflecting on this in our thoughts. Just this morning we sang, Ruler Supreme, But we look around us and we see in many places that churches are aging, churches are closing. From our perspective here in Canada, this can seem downright depressing. Ruler supreme, but is he actually? Is he actually ruler supreme in this country? Yes, he is. Even when people believe themselves to be living in a post-Christian world, he is 
the ruler supreme. And this is where we're called to take a step back and see this world not from that of man upwards, but from that of heaven downwards. Think of those exiles in the time of Daniel. They had had Israel and Judah invaded. They had been looking around them, seeing themselves carried off into exile, and they're looking around at the world and they're thinking, where is God's control in all of this? But here we see Daniel through this vision that is given to the king, the king of all of the known world at this time, that God's kingdom will advance. We are given the opportunity to take a step back from our immediate surroundings and to take a look not from the earth up, but from the perspective of heaven down. And we'll consider this further as we look at the second point today as well, through all our lives. So in connection with this point, I'd like you to open to the narrative of Elijah for a moment with me. 1 Kings 19, the verses 1 to 4. Elijah here found himself in a similar situation to that of the Israelites, or that of the Jews, pardon me, who were in exile, it seemed that the forces of evil had won. 1 Kings 19, the verses 1 to 4. So Elijah had just had a moment in which there was a great revival, or at least he thought there was a great revival, and he had told the people Uh, to turn their hearts back to the Lord, and the people had executed many prophets of Baal. But then we get this happening. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Here we see the personal distress of Elijah as he's sitting under this broom tree. And yeah, it felt like there was some headway that was made. But then suddenly it all comes crashing down around him and his, own, his very own life is on the line. He says, I'm no better than my father's. I haven't been able to make any more headway than they have. There are very few people who believe in God. It seems for a moment in time that they had this religious revival, but the government opposition has not only cut it short, but even drove Elijah himself into hiding. And now it feels like he's the only believer in the whole world. He's depressed at the state of God's kingdom. 
He is a voice calling out on behalf of his king. And he's been crying out time and time again, and yet nobody seems to hear. No one seems to care. And now his very own life is at risk. He's so deeply depressed, and he feels like he's been just hitting his head against the brick wall. There has been no progress. Any progress that was there is wiped out. And he wants his own life to be taken. But what does God say to him? Let's look at verse 14 for a moment here. Elijah says, he he cries out, I've tried, Lord. I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. The Lord hears him. And then the Lord takes his view off of his perspective, his limited earthly perspective, and he gives him a heavenly perspective. He tells him, There are things going on that you don't know about. And he rounds that all off at the very end of the passage with these words. Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then he gently calls Elijah back to faithful service. While from our perspective, God's people may seem weak, they have God. And that's enough. That is enough. God reserves for himself a people. He preserves a remnant of his own He is the one who keeps them faithful. And so here we are driven to lift up our eyes from our own situation and lift them up to heaven where the king of heaven reigns. But there's more. Let's open to Haggai for a moment as well. Here we see the response of those who have come back from exile. Turn to Haggai and look more specifically at chapter 2. Haggai chapter 1 speaks of the rebuke of God towards his people for putting their own interests first. And he calls them to focus their time and resources on God. And for those of you who were here last week, you may remember that as well. But it's in Haggai chapter 2 in particular that stands out here with what we are looking at with regards to the kingdom of God today. They have turned in faith and they have repented of wrong priorities. They've rebuilt the temple of God. But here they are greatly saddened by the fact that this is nothing compared to the temple's former glory 
Now, these are men who have returned from exile. And these are men and women who would have remembered the words of Daniel that were passed on. This message would have gone out to them before as well. And yet, although it had given them, uh, although it had given them strength for a little while, they had slowed down. They were greatly saddened by what the, the fact that what they were doing wasn't anything compared to what had been before. Comparing it to what some of them had formerly known was leading them to be discouraged and leading the work to slow. We can sympathize with this, can't we? We can compare our work to those around, other churches that are around, other countries that are around. We can even compare our work right now to what we ourselves were formerly able to accomplish. And there are times when we can let that drive us to disappointment. The question is, what are we seeking to accomplish when we allow our failures to drive us to disappointments? The Lord tells his people here in Haggai 2, the verses 3 to 5, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. He calls them not to compare, not to look at what's being done, and not to compare it with the wealth and splendor of this world or the kingdom that they had just come out of with all of its glory. But he calls them to look to God, to take a heaven's eye view and to faithfully work in response to that. And this is where our point of view should be as well when we personally become involved with the advancement of the kingdom of God. We do not just pray that God would expand his kingdom in this world and then stand idly by, shrink back because of our own depression with regards to our work, with our own disappointment, I should say, rather, with what we've been able to accomplish. Satan wants God's people to stand idly by, to be passive before God, Because being passive before God advances his own agenda pretty well, giving him plenty of opportunity to get us involved with sin. But we also don't try to go it alone and beat ourselves up, degrading ourselves for not working God's kingdom in the same way or with the same energy as those around us. Rather, we pray to God that he would direct our hearts towards him. And in response to that, towards faithfulness. 
faithfulness, remembering those words from Haggai chapter 2, because I am with you. That he would rule us by his word and spirit, that more and more we would submit to him in this world, that he would destroy the works of the devil in our own lives personally as well, measuring our lives according to his will. Can we be perfect in this as we work in this kingdom? Will we be perfect in this? No. Not until that final day. That day when the fullness of God's kingdom comes. But the question is, the question that remains is, are we faithful in this? We may not be perfect We may not even be able to measure up with what we once were able to do. But by God's grace, are we faithful in our work here? Do we take courage from what we ourselves are accomplishing? Or do we take courage in our God and what he is accomplishing through this world using even our own feeble efforts? When we pray, your kingdom come. We recognize that God's kingdom is not stalled. That God's kingdom has not failed in this world. That despite opposition, Satan has not been able to snuff it out. We recognize that it is God who is at work. And that it is God who is working through us, using us as his instruments to advance his kingdom in this world. And so we pray that where we are faithful, he would grant us peace in this. Grant us peace in the fact that we are faithful. And that this is evidence that he is with us, even if what we do doesn't compare to what is going around in the world around us. That his spirit is among us. And above all, to see that our very own faithfulness comes as a gift from God in answer to this prayer that he is advancing his kingdom in our own hearts. Beloved, let us strive by God's grace to continue in this Continue in the strength that he provides and to glorify him, seeking out new opportunities to faithfully encourage each other in service as we continue to advance his kingdom in this world to his glory with a heaven's eye view. Amen.